You are now listening to Testimonies with Terry. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the third episode of Season 2 of Testimonies with Terry. I'm your host, Terry Skaggs, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at TWTerryPod and on Facebook by liking the Testimonies with Terry Facebook page. Today, I'm going to be talking to a man who has been able to endure through what he calls multiple traumas throughout his life. From his dad leaving him at a young age and never coming back, to losing multiple father figures and mentors in his life, to learning how to become a father himself when he was in college, and then surviving a near-fatal work accident. You're going to hear how he has been able to rise above these circumstances, not let them define him, and see God's hand at work through it all. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Nick Sutton's Testimony. All right, everyone. I'm here with my buddy, Nick Sutton. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, you bet, Terry. This is awesome. Yeah, so we've known each other for probably a few years, but haven't really developed you know, our friendship probably until the last two, maybe three years. And it's been great getting to know you and mm-hmm. obviously getting to know some of your story in, in that time. And so I'm excited for you to uh, share your story with everyone else here. Yeah, we've got a lot of info here. So. <laughs> let's get into it, Nick. Uh, let's start off with where did you uh, grow up and what was family life like for you? So I grew up in Starbuck, Minnesota. That's out west towards Alexandria, Glenwood area. Minnewaska High School was where I went, and uh, yeah, I'm the middle of three boys, and my brothers are like two-ish years on each side of me, and I guess it kind of starts out deep right away because my childhood was rough. Um, For the first handful of years, my biological dad left us when I was three, and as a young kid, you know, how do you cope with that, and trying to live your normal childhood, but without your dad. Um, So I don't really remember, per se, memories with him. I was pretty young. Maybe just a few negative memories, I would say. You know, the the bashing and the, you know, fighting and whatnot between my mom and dad at the time. But yeah, that was kind of my beginning as far as memories and... I don't even know where we lived at the time. Can't really tell you specifics, but I grew up without a dad for a few years. And, well, I I haven't talked to him since. He's never connected. He's never reached out. And I think that's more so because my mom has told him not to. And I can't definitively say that as his answer, but I feel that's the reasoning behind it. It was pretty negative. It was a bad part of our life, and my mom kind of kicked him out. So, all in all, it's a good thing for my mom. But uh, childhood was different, you know, for me and my brothers. We had to learn to play together without dad. And um, 
grow up trying to find fatherly mentorship in a way. But my mom remarried when I was seven. So my bro- older brother was nine and younger was five. So it's still a really young age for trying to cope with things and going through, you know, losing a dad to now gaining a stepdad and trying to go through, you know, just elementary school and plays and sports and not really understanding who dad is at the time. Yeah. Do you remember a specific time where you you kind of recognize that dad's not around anymore? I can't say I can't say I did. You know, it was it was just a life of no dad. It wasn't like I remember dad, his hugs, his, you know, good night stories. I don't remember any of that. So it's tough to say like, oh, I miss that or I wish I had that again. Like it just never was for me. Maybe my brothers remember some specific things, but the only memory I'll share, just one memory I remember is I got a fire truck from him for Christmas. And that was probably when I was two or three in those two, three years. And I loved that thing. So a fire truck kind of sticks out to me, but I can't tell you what or where or kind of vague memories. Yeah. Gotcha. So then when uh, mom started dating, um, specifically your stepdad, do you remember what that was like? You know, here comes this man coming into your life and kind of taking on a fatherly role. What was that like for you? Yeah, that's, it was interesting. Um, maybe I'm blessed in a way where a lot of that time in my life doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't hold me back from anything right now. It just kind of flew by, I guess. And maybe I'm kind of dealing with some of that trauma now, per se, in my mind, going through some battles and mentally. But at the time, I didn't think about mom going out for dinner with my stepdad. I didn't think about who is this guy or why are we doing this? It was just, it was just life. We kind of had a messy life for five plus years there. And I lived at my grandma's in those from three years old to seven years old, those four or so years when my stepdad came into the picture, my mom was living with my grandma at the time then in the intermediate time. And so we just lived with grandma in the basement, hung out, you know, it was fun for us kids, got to be with grandma and grandpa all the time. And you know, got spoiled to a, to an extent. Um, but I wouldn't say any of that is a negative time for me in the dating phase. We never really knew mom was dating until she's like, here we go. We're going to get married. And we were like, cool, whatever. Yeah. You know? So, so pausing here and backing up a little bit, you mentioned you lived with grandma and grandpa for a few years. Mm-hmm. What role did your grandpa play then as far as kind of being that strong male influence in your life? Yeah, so that was huge in my childhood. I remember I remember so much with my grandpa. He would take us out to cut firewood every single weekend. Saturdays were our firewood cutting days, and we all looked forward to it. Or I did especially. 
we'd hop in the truck and go cut wood, stack it in the garage. They had a wood stove in the house, and he'd take us fishing on the docks. He'd do just cool dad things. And to him, maybe it wasn't like I'm. Tr- he wasn't trying per se to do things with the kids. That's just how my grandpa lived. He's going to cut wood either way. So we're hopping in the truck. He's going fishing anyway. So we're going to go fishing with him. So he just kind of had this like outdoorsy type vibe to him. And we just hopped on board with it. And we, we really enjoyed those days. Yeah. And I mean, still to this day, you're, you're big into the outdoors, right? Oh yeah. Yep. I love my hunting and fishing and I don't do enough of it. That's for sure. But <laughs> now with my kids growing up, we're going to definitely get into it a lot more. So. For sure. So then going back again to your stepdad entering your life, eventually, obviously they get married. What was that transition like for you guys as far as him moving in with you and him, you know, kind of officially taking on that fatherly role? Well, it's kind of cool because we actually moved in with him. He had a farmhouse out in the country with three or four acres, I think, and just a hobby farm. We had a few chickens and some pigs and that was so cool as a kid. Like we get to just go out in the country because my grandma, where we lived for four years, was in town. She actually was my daycare provider and a licensed daycare. So she had 10 or whatever kids in the house. So we just stayed with grandma all day and hung out. So now we get to go experience the exact opposite. Like out in the country, there's pigs and chickens and fields. Like we just, my dad let us just I call him dad because I haven't known anything else personally. I've experienced a biological dad, but I don't remember it. So I call him my stepdad, my dad. And I just remember just hopping on lawnmowers and mowing, like not even straight lines. We just go zipping X's (laughs) and circles out in the field. And it was just so much fun chopping up gardener snakes and frogs and Feeding the pigs, you know, gardening. He had a huge garden, so we got to just pick peppers and eat and whatever. It was just extremely different at the time. Yeah. So it sounds like you were able to form a pretty close relationship with him, you know, pretty quickly into your guys' relationship? Um, I, I wouldn't say we had this, like, natural bond, but there wasn't anything wrong with the relationship. We never got into, you know, like, hey, you need to listen to me. I'm your dad. That kind of thing, you know, overpowering. There was none of that. He's, I would say he's the most gentle and kind man I know. I wouldn't say he's an overpowering or, you know, authoritative person. He's just, he really go with the flow and probably the best case scenario for our situation at the time. Yeah. What was school like for you during this time, Nick? Um, maybe even you know before your stepdad entering into your life, did you see other kids, you know, with their dads dropping them off at school or them talking about doing things with dad? What what was that like for you? It kind of goes back to what I was just mentioning about it just flew by. I, of course, I think I saw the dads, you know, dropping them off at school or. We, I'd ha- I had friends, and we'd go to their houses and play. They would, the dad would be outside shoveling or starting the snowmobiles for us, those kind of things. And I don't, I don't know. I think God blurred that out of my mind because 
it could have been very traumatic as far as could have completely ruined my childhood. Th- overthinking things and where's my dad and just hurt all the time. But I wasn't. I just kind of lived the life that I had. I didn't have a dad for mm. those few years. I, Well, f- first three years too, you know, if he's not there mentally and physically to help with things, then I wouldn't call him a great father. What was your relationship with your mom like during that time too? Do you remember much about that? Um, that's a good question. I would say us boys just knew that she was fighting a battle that was really tough, you know, and just the abusive verbally and physically relationship she was in trying to get out of that and just battle through raising three kids and trying to work. And she had to move in with her parents. Like that's not a dream, right? You don't dream of doing that. So for her to try to just push through that and just, you know, venturing out and meeting this great guy and stepping up to the plate and moving forward, I think it for me showed her will and just wanting to raise the three boys the best she could in the situation. Yeah, she sounds like a strong lady for sure. Yeah, one of the strongest willed people I know for sure. Definitely. So yeah, your your stepdad comes into the picture. You kind of have your your family intact now. What's kind of the next part of your story? The remarriage, everything with that stepdad being so nice. You know, you can't overshadow that. Like as a kid, you need that balance in your life. You know, you come from a a dark place what could have been really dark for three kids into this like kind, gentle, like a teddy bear guy just loves you through everything and takes you to every sporting event. And, you know, it's just all encompassing. But at the same time, we didn't have like that heart to heart yet. So we just tried to grow through that through our years. And he definitely flourished into that fatherly role, you know, taking us fishing and he started his own little lawn care company and us boys were the lawn mowers and we're out mowing every night. You know, it was just kind of a fun little family thing. But, you know, as we grew up, us boys, you know, each separated into our likes and dislikes of life, sports or choir or band or, you know, things we got into. And for me personally, I was just trying to fit in anywhere I could. And I think that comes back to that identity of, where I've been, I'm trying to just find my role in this world almost. Like, I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a father figure for a long time. Who am I? Like, what am I doing here? Who loves me? I think that came into my head a lot. Who loves me? You know, like, even those days when I was at grandma's for the whole day, by you know, with my brother and sister, my brothers and the daycare kids, Mom was at work for 18 hours, let's say, long days. And I was just like, is this life? Like, just hanging out? Like, shouldn't we be going to, like, the water park? Shouldn't we be going sledding? Things like that. I feel like there was a lot of days of just bah humbug me, you know? I kind of got down. But as a kid, like, I didn't get depressed, I wouldn't say. I think it was just a mental state of like, there's got to be more than this, Mm. you know? 
That's interesting. Even that young, you were able to kind of recognize that, man, there's got to be more to life than just hanging around, you know, with other people all day. Right. I, I remember a couple times specifically out on the playground at daycare, just digging in the dirt, you know, playing with my brothers and we're like, what else do you want to do? You know, like <laughs> looked at each other like, so what's next? And we'd shoot some hoops on the basketball and we just kind of, you know, we're wasting time. You know, as a kid, it's kind of weird to say that because you just enjoy your youth and, you know, play and imagine and be creative. But I think it was different for me now yeah. that we kind of regurgitate all this. It was like I was trying to process it and find my identity almost and that's where i was going with like my teen years trying to fit in trying to find that group trying to find you know i joined anything i could i joined band i joined choir i joined baseball football intramural sports just to be with people i was at every varsity game there was you know in the winter i didn't enjoy per se those varsity games but i was just trying to you know hey you're going i'll go let's go hang out and spend 20 bucks on candy. <laughs> yeah. What was that like trying to find that acceptance and, and just kind of your your place in the world, so to speak, at least, you know, in, in the high school world? Um, you know, it, was there a big fear of like rejection? Yeah. Yeah, there was a big fear of rejection. I think it goes back to my biological dad leaving. You know, it's easy for me to say that now. Just, you know, 2020 hindsight, I can connect the dots that way. But when I was, you know, 10 to 13 ish, I I would say I just had this fear of failure. Like friends, I, I made sure I pleased my friends however I could. You know, if they wanted to play basketball, I'll play basketball. Like I didn't care what I wanted to do. I didn't necessarily love basketball or let's go snowmobiling okay, I'll be right over. Like, it was never, hey, Nick, what do you want to do? I just did whatever I could. Like, let's go. Let's do it. Like, kind of became a people pleaser? Yeah, for sure. And I followed. I was a crowd follower, for sure. Even through 17-ish years old, like, I think I blossomed in my mental state at 18. My senior year of high school, I was like, it's time to grow up. Not that I grew up to like the grown man stage, but I knew that, okay, I don't need to follow these guys anymore, which we'll get into. But there was a lot more, you know, I started going to, well, we went to church this whole time. My stepdad, faithful man, we had this small little church in the country that we went to. He made sure we we're going every Sunday. And we're at Wednesday night things, every church event, we're all involved. Mom would sing up on the platform on Sunday mornings. Dad would be, you know, doing his thing in the lobby. Us kids would always be involved in the dramas, the the picnics. We would always be doing something. And that really impacted me for years and years because I just saw how my dad did things. It was never like... The word's so true about never doing it in like a selfish manner, never grumbling. He speaks volumes to that and just 
This is what we do because not because we have to, but because we get to. We love Jesus, and that's why we go to church. That's why we serve other people. It's not for your pride or your status in the church. It's because we love Jesus. Yeah, amen. So I just saw his life in that manner, and I've, I'll sit here and say I wasn't the best teenager to deal with. You know, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, let's go to church Wednesday night and serve other people or go to a youth group, anything. I was, you know, down in the dumps some days, and some days I kicked and screamed my way out of the door, you know, figuratively. Um, but he pushed me and my mom. It's not just my stepdad, but they pushed us into these youth groups and in a gentle way, not like, get in there. But we all got encompassed by these people. That's what it was, these people around us our youth leaders, our youth pastors. And this was such a small church. They're not like ordained pastors. They're just like our neighbors and our friends down the street who are just in love with Jesus. And they show up at the same building and teach other people about this Jesus. That's it. It's not this like big show, you know. It was really cool to be in that small town setting. I really, really miss that. Yeah. And River of Life is amazing. I love this church. But there are times where I just love that small 40-people setting and just hang out with, you know, everybody. Yeah. But, yeah, so we got into, like, mission trips in the youth group when we were, I was probably 14. We went down to South Carolina. That was my first mission trip. And that was, at the time, life-changing because I'd never been separated from my parents for a day even. Oh, man, that's a good point. I mean, maybe a sleepover at a friend's house, you know, like Friday night. But we were gone for five days or so. We drove down, and that was different. My older brother came with, and there's six to eight of us youth that went and just served at a little trailer park. We did a VBS in the trailer park. And, yeah, it was it was different. You know, I was away from mom and dad now. It was 14, you know, you're grown up enough to, you know, make sure you eat, make sure you sleep, all the necessities, but I don't know. It was just different, not negative, not positive, I would say, but it was a positive experience in my walk with Christ because I just got in love with the missions behind things. I was like, this is what life is about, you know, and I didn't internalize it to a deeper state that I do now. But I just, I remember going into those places, the trailer park, and it changed my perspective. Like, there's so many other people in this world, and we're called to reach them. That's what we're supposed to do. Amen. It doesn't need to be Africa. It doesn't need to be Russia. It doesn't need to be Brazil. It needs to be your neighborhood. It needs to be your neighbor who just had a cancer diagnosis. It needs to be your friend down the street who lost their mom. It's everybody. We each have a story, just like these testimonies share, and we each have pain we're going through, and we can help each other. And that's why I love these testimonies, because they're powerful. You share your story, and whether it changes somebody's life who's listening, or it changes the life of the speaker, you know, just opens them up to a new audience or a new way to talk about things. I think it's extremely powerful. That just goes back to missions for me. 
What was that like then, Nick, you know, growing up in the church and, and knowing that there's a heavenly father there, but then going through the experiences with your biological father? Um, what was that like? Like, how did that alter your perception of God, specifically God as a father? Yeah, that that kind of comes into full circle when I was about 20. And we can get into that in just a minute because there's just a few other things from when I was like 14 to 17 that happened. Yeah, let's not skip over that. Yeah, there's yep. just some major things where... So my my word I tried to put over my whole testimony was that I went through a lot of trauma and capital T and it's not something I'm proud of but I do label it not in a way that the devil can use that but as a way that I can overcome that word I'm overcoming this trauma yeah one was the my childhood the first thing I remember is my dad leaving and if you have a strong family if you have a strong dad in your life father figure it's tough to know how that feels the second thing of this trauma path was my grandpa dying and he was the one who kind of fell into my father role there for four years and beyond you know he didn't just stop when my stepdad came in he was always there for us but those crucial four years when we lived with him he was my rock you know but the traumatizing part was I was in the house when he died. He he died in his sleep, but we just had our typical sleepover with grandma and grandpa. And I remember the, I don't know what time it was, 7 a.m. We all woke up, us boys, and to grandma's screaming in the bedroom because she found her husband laying there. And she's running out, calling 911 and ambulances and you know, just chaos. And it was a school day for us kids. We were in elementary school. The neighbor saw the ambulances, came in the house and like, you know, anything to help. And grandma just kind of shoved us boys out the door with the neighbor and said, they need to get to school. They don't need to be here for this. And none of us boys knew what was going on. You know, they didn't, we didn't see grandpa. We didn't all we heard was, you know, the noise, the ambulances, the screaming, the what's going on. And us boys were just like, what in the world? Yeah. What's going on? And that was, you know, our rock. So it was tough, traumatizing. I was 10 at the time. It was 2000. So that was the next step in my trauma path. Well, um, and stopping there for a sec, Nick, I mean, you said that, as they were getting the ambulance there and neighbors were coming over, they sent you off to school because you didn't need to be around that. What was that like for you? I mean, I, I can't imagine as a 10-year-old, obviously you recognize that something is not okay here, but we're going to send you to school and just almost kind of like pretend that things are okay. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was the weirdest car ride of my life because the neighbor didn't know what happened either. They had a young girl in the car, and she was one of our ages, you know, going to school with us. And, you know, they were just asking questions like, hey, are you guys okay? Like, how can we help you? What happened? And 
all three of us were dumbfounded. Like, we, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. We don't know how to answer your questions. And we obviously knew something was wrong, bad. So we were all kind of in shock. I remember my older brother yelling at us younger boys. Like, I don't even remember what he said. It was kind of in the movies when they slow things down and you can see somebody yelling, but you can't hear them. You know, it's like the Matrix. It slows down, slow motion. They're yelling. You can see their mouth moving, but it's just like this ringing sound is happening. Yeah, you can like hear your heart beating out of your chest and that ringing in your ears. That's exactly how that felt Mm. for probably three minutes. And that was probably the worst feeling I've ever had until we'll get into some more of this trauma I'm going to speak about. But that feeling of the matrix, I will never forget that. Wow. Kind of going from there, though, my my grandpa was that father figure for a long time there. And as we grew up, we're getting into teenage years, but I haven't really brought up my uncle. My uncle Peter was a huge part of my childhood as well. He lived right in the same town as us. He was my mom's brother. And he he taught us piano, you know, kind of the great uncle, you know, go to Uncle Peter's house. He played board games, you know, made the greatest dinners and just fun, awesome dude. He, he was just a teller at a bank, you know, nothing like a doctor, no lawyer, just humble, amazing dad. He had three kids. He was the worship leader at the local church. They branched off. He he did a church plant in my hometown. Great worship leader, just the heart for the Lord. During my senior year, he was killed in a car accident. Oh, man. And he was, you know, so my grandpa died then. A few years passed by, and I'm still, you know, I'm connecting with my uncle a little better even because now my grandpa's gone. I'm just yearning for just male attention, you know, a father figure to pour into my life. And stepdads are great, but there's always going to be a little bit of a void there. At least there was for me. Sure. So I was reaching out to my uncle. You know, I knew him from birth. I wasn't unfamiliar with him. We didn't just marry into his family. You know, there was always my uncle there. And, uh, yeah, he taught us all my music skills at the time. He was fun-loving. We were always over there for anything. And he taught me how to be humble, how to give without receiving. He was extremely good at just mowing everyone's yard in the neighborhood without even asking and, you know, just going out, serving people. Yeah, it came down to, I remember this night, like, I'm considering bringing this night to LA (laughs) to give it to a producer and make a movie out of this because it, it's burned into my mind. So I was in high school Senior year, so it was September, I was in football. I was my senior year of football, first game of the year. We were on the field. It was Friday night, you know, under the lights, 7 o'clock game. And at about 5.30, we're all in the locker room getting dressed, getting ready. 5.30 rolls around, and we're walking out to the stadium, you know, get on the field, warm up, and there's just a thousand sirens going by. Cops, ambulances, fire trucks. 
and it's a small town. There's a thousand people in my town, so we're all just kind of like, what's going on, you know? That could be my neighbor's house burning, or it could be someone we know is hurt. And none of us thought anything of it. We all go about our day and start warming up. And then the game gets closer and closer, and there's still sirens everywhere. And we're just kind of like yelling at each other on the field because we can't hear each other. These sirens, they're so close. They're right out our back door at the school. I remember distinctly we went back into the school as a team just before the game to get our final like meetings and whatnot. We go back in the school and one of the firemen was walking into the school. And all of us guys were just like, hey, we hear the sirens. What's going on? You know, kind of lackadaisical, like not caring. And the fireman looked directly at me and he's like, we'll talk about this later. And I was like, what'd you look at me, dude? You know, kind of, it was weird. And we all walk into the locker room and everyone's just like, okay, let's go play a game. We're all getting rowdy. Well, 10 minutes later, we run out on the field, sing the national anthem and kick off. And two minutes into the game, I remember this, the ref and a sheriff run out onto the middle of the field. I was in the game. I've never seen a sheriff on a football field during a game. Yeah. The ref, the sheriff, and my mom was trailing behind them, ran out onto the field, and I'm out there in my pads, and they, you know, waving their hands like, stop the game, time out. And the sheriff and my mom stood and looked at me and said, your Uncle Peter died in an accident. And we wanted to be the first to tell you not just hear it through the fans or through the crowd. And my mom looked at me, she's like, do you want to keep playing or do you want to come home? And I was like, um, I'm going to play for Peter tonight. Mm. And, you know, I'm making this really brief. This was like a five-minute exchange in the huddle there. Maybe not five, but it wasn't brief. And I've never cried like that before. I cried like a baby on that field. I remember, you know, playing through the game. The one thing I left out in the accident was the two people in another car were two of my great friends. So it was kind of a double hit for me. You know, I lost my uncle, and two of my friends were injured and survived. And one of them was, like, at the time, my best friend. And I have no hard feelings to this day. I mean, it's an unfortunate event. But it was extremely tough, you know, going from there through high school, trying to cope with losing my uncle, another male figure in my life gone, and connecting with these guys again. Maybe not to the extent I did, but just trying to say hi in the hallway. It's kind of awkward. Yeah, it was awkward. One, just saying hi to them, but also with all the pressure from everyone else. Every eye in the hallway was on me. How am I going to react to him as I pass him? Yeah. Am I going to clock him in the face or am I going to give him a hug? You know, I had that pressure on me for my entire senior year. Just yeah. how am I going to deal with these two guys? You know, and it, it was, it wasn't like it was easy to hide either. One of them broke his leg, one broke his wrist. So it was like this physical, you know, resemblance of the accident 
I could see it every time I saw them. You know, it was mentally burned into my head. But then I see his leg brace. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's from the accident. I remember that night. But so going through the, the game, gets to halftime, and we're all kind of walking off the field to our locker room. And the driver of the vehicle, my friend, came back to the game. He was supposed to be on the field with us. They're both football players. So he showed up back at the field. And all of us, my coaches, everyone was like, whoa, what are you doing here? I remember running to him, running as fast as I could. I gave him the biggest hug of my life. I told him I loved him. And we just, we didn't say anything. No words were needed at the time about, you know, what happened or, you know, whatever. We didn't talk. I wrapped him up. I hugged him probably the entire halftime. Crying. He was crying. You know, nobody meant for this. But then the game goes on. I was not a stud football player by any means. I was fourth string fullback. I don't even know what I was. I was just (laughs) on the team. Yep. I loved it. You know, I got to play some special team stuff. But I remember I got one kickoff return that game. Like at the end of the game, fourth quarter, the other team kicks it off. And I received this thing. And I'm like in the second row of guys. I'm not in the far back receiving this ball. So I just get the ball. Like I'm not supposed to have this ball. Like that's just not how these kickoffs work. Yeah. I should not have this ball right now. So I'm just like, oh boy, running around. And I I jet through and I I maybe make 10 yards. At the time, though, it felt like 100. I was like, oh, man. I remember falling. You know, I got tackled. I fell down. I was like, this is the best game of my life. <laughs> and I look back at the tape now. That was probably the weakest play you could possibly <laughs> draw. But at the moment, like, that just rejuvenated my spirit. Yeah. Like, to get through that game. And I remember getting off that field then. Game ends. I believe we won. Didn't really matter. And I threw my helmet at the school as I'm walking back in. It's a concrete wall. I threw my helmet and the face mask blew up. And like, like there were so many moments. I wish there was just a camera on that night, you know, just to f- view this whole scenario. Because the stands were different. Like the the crowd noise was different. Not just to me, but to the, the coaches. The coaches said that was the the weirdest night, you know, just the vibe. Yeah. You know, there's two men that were supposed to be in this game and a guy died and, you know, just like chaos. You could still hear sirens. And my parents actually drove to my game that night and passed the wreck on the highway. Oh, wow. They drove right by it. And my mom said, after the fact, she's like, I thought that was Peter's car when we drove by. And it was. Mm. And my grandma was with, so like mom and sister of this guy driving by it. Every time I drive through that intersection now, I just like, this is where he met Jesus. Yeah. You know? So I I have no doubt he is praising Jesus today. And it's it's the hope that we all need, (laughs) especially in those dark times. Well, man... 
I mean, there, there's definitely a theme there, right, Nick, as far as just these important male figures either not being a part of your life or, you know, leaving your life, you know, with, with, with death. And so how did, I mean, that happened your senior year losing Uncle Peter. How did the rest of your senior year play out? Um, obviously, that's a time, too, where you're looking ahead to life after high school and what are you going to do for college and things mm-hmm. like that. So, so what was that like for you? Yeah, it's interesting because I was still in that phase where I was trying to fit in anywhere I could. And I just kind of found my right friend group. I was fitting in and having fun in my senior year. But now my uncle passed. I'm going through a lot of mental anxiety, you know, in the hallways, like I was mentioning. And I never really had a plan after high school. I always enjoyed music. I was, I would say decent at choir. I don't know how you can be decent at choir, but. (laughs) But you were. But I was, I was okay. I'm not going to sit here and boast. I'm not the best singer on the planet. I'm not the best piano player or guitar player, but I loved it. I had a serious passion for it. And I figured, you know, if I have a passion for it, I'm going to try it. I excelled in baseball my senior year where I was getting scouted slightly for colleges. Right when my uncle died, I knew, okay, I need to follow his footsteps. He was a great musician, and he went to St. Cloud State for music. So he graduated with a degree in percussion. So it just kind of hit me, like, I'm going to take my passions. I'm going to follow what my uncle did. He was just kind of my mentor through childhood and see what happens. I didn't really have a plan. And I think that's a God thing because I could have gone other ways. I could have gone to play baseball in Fergus Falls. I could have gone to play baseball in a lot of different little towns. But like this music thing just had this twist on me and I needed to pursue it. I just had this, and I can't even say that it was in the moment God pushing me to do it because I wasn't following God to the extent that I need to be. You know, I believed there was God and Jesus and all happy, but I wasn't living a life for God. And that's completely different things. I just had this push. I went for it, signed up for St. Cloud State, went that next fall, and it did not go the way I wanted. You know, I wasn't prepared for what college is. It's a ruthless beast especially St. Cloud State. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's one of the top three schools. I think in the nation, it's ranked as one of the top partying schools in the nation. Yeah. Yep. And also very liberal too. Liberal school. Yeah. So it was just a nasty mix for me at the time. And I was still trying to cope with a lot of this trauma. And I just decided, you know, alcohol was the way. And I wouldn't say I became an alcoholic by any means. But I was a social drinker. I went out every weekend, you know, the thing to do. We all drank. And I was in the choir. And that was kind of a choir thing. Choir parties. And it was pretty stupid. Just a stupid lifestyle. That actually gets into my next step of trauma. Was through that lifestyle that I was living, I met my son's mother, my oldest son. He's 11 now, which would bring me into my sophomore year of college. And that's when her and I had a child together. And it wasn't planned. 
It was through this bad lifestyle. But yeah, it was traumatizing, you know, in just the simple fact that you're having a child, unmarried, in college, no money, no house, no, you know, structure to your life. That's stressful in one. But I think this situation had another layer, another level of frustration and anxiety because it got really messy with her parents getting involved and like making us separate and we were going to go down the adoption route and then she kind of decided out of that and I'm in support of either way, you know, as long as we're not talking about abortion. That actually came up. The abortion came up like the first conversation we ever talked, you know, like she's pregnant and we were kind of like, oh no, what do we do? And I, I won't lie, that abortion came up first. Like, let's get out of this. And we were all lined up to go down. And this was like when she's, what, two, three, four weeks into pregnancy. And that doesn't make it any better. That is not an out for anyone. In my eyes and in God's eyes. Yeah, we had it lined up. But overnight, right, the night before we were going to go down to the cities, she called or texted me and said, I'm not doing that. I said, thank you, Jesus. Mm, yeah. Because I was just trying to support her. And I was juvenile. I was just being easy. I wasn't trying to be authoritative or pushing. So I was just going along with it. And now I think, like, I was being weak. But I just said, thank you, Jesus. Like, let's go. Let's have this kid. And, you know, through the months, you know, we go through a lot of chaos of the setting, the situation, who's going to have the, you know, child and all these scenarios. And long story short, it was a complete mess. And there was a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. We didn't talk to each other. It was through texting to her dad and he kind of laid the rules down and I'm all for, you know, a dad stepping in to take care of things too, because I would do the same for my kids. So we've grown through a lot of this as men, him and I, and my son's mother. And I would say we've grown a hundredfold to this day. And that's why, like, this is where my testimony gets real amazing, because those situations don't always take place. Right. You know, like a nasty birth situation into, you know, that can be a lifetime of pain. And I could easily let that be pain still. I could sit here and sulk in it and just be sad. And yeah, that was messy and just keep talking about it and regurgitate it all every day. But I don't. I don't let that affect my mind. And my wife, and we'll get into how we met. My wife is my biggest supporter in not allowing us to talk negative, not allowing us to go there mentally. Like, we're done with that. We're done living in those stupid days. We are in Christ and we're moving forward. And it's an amazing feeling because there's so much peace. There's so much peace when you just give it to God. Like, there's, there's definitely situations that are frustrating still talking through certain school things with mom or travel, you know, drop-offs, pickups, and all the things Sure, with kids, finances, everything. 
But when you have Christ in your heart and you know this is the smallest blip on the map, maybe it's frustrating right now, but it doesn't matter. These little things don't matter. Pick up your son. Yeah. I will drop him off. Doesn't matter. We'll, we'll get it done. And then we move on. And you have peace because it doesn't matter. To an extent, you know, we're going to take care of the situation at hand. But I'm not going to sit here and sulk for two hours over what the text said. I'm going to move on. Like, we're adults. Yeah. I think that's that's great advice, Nick, because like you said, that's definitely not the situation for everyone in, in that kind of scenario where, you know, mom and dad aren't together anymore, the kid's in the middle. And, I mean, I see it a lot just in my job where – I mean, yeah, when, when the parents aren't on the same page, the kid suffers mm-hmm. for sure. And so it sounds like you and, and your son's mom have done obviously a lot of growing and maturing. You guys were what, you know, 21, if that, you know, when you had him. And so over the years, it sounds like you guys have, you know, stuck it out together in the sense that, hey, how do we be the best parents for him and not let our differences get in the way of that? Right. Yeah, I'd say that's the key. We've kind of set him in the in the forefront you know we each have uh not necessities but desires as to how and what you know in each situation but we don't let that trump his importance yeah what was that like then for you becoming a father i mean let alone at Mm -hmm. you know in your early 20s but we, we've talked about your dad not being part of of your life and obviously your stepdad Stepdad came in later, but here you are now, this little baby boy in your arms, and you're expected to be the father. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate through that? Yeah, it's that's cool because so back up, you know, 30 minutes from here, I was saying we're going to get to my fa- heavenly father part and how my heavenly father role comes in with my father. And, and now I get to be a father. It was... It was the biggest weight on my shoulders for a little bit until I gave it to God. You know, like, oh man, I got to, you know, financially or physically get a room for him. You know, all the things, you know, a crib. And and then, you know, I've, I rallied with my parents and family. I was like, wow, everything is taken care of. Everything physically, financially, I'm not worried. But it came down to my son saved my life in a way because he connected me back to my heavenly father. So I was going to church at Calvary Church in St. Cloud. And this ties into my college days. I was still in college. And I'll just do a little bit of history here with my church. I wasn't going to church at all for those first two years. You know, I knew about Jesus, like I've been saying. We went to church a lot as a kid. Grew up with a great stepdad, you know, teaching us all about it. Fell away in college. Sad to say, it's kind of typical there. For St. Cloud State especially, it's a sad beast there. I had this one friend in choir who just always went to church. And the Holy Spirit dove into my heart one day because she asked me, Hey, do you want to go to church with me on Sunday? I was like, yes, sure. And we went, and the sermon was the most basic sermon you can possibly imagine. And it was perfect. Because the the preacher was just, how do you read your Bible? 
And I was like, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know how to read my Bible. I'd never invested more than three verses in my Bible, you know, at a time. And he's just, you know, explaining how to read your Gospels and how to read through the uh, everything. And the Holy Spirit led me right to that platform after the service. I, w- I walked up onto the stage. I talked to him. His name is Josh, still the youth pastor at Calvary. I was like, Josh, how do I do this? I want to get better at this. What am I? Help me out here. We sat down in the front row of church and read through the entire book of Matthew right there. And from that day on, I had a friend, Josh, but I also had a group of friends because he was the youth pastor. And he had all these youth leaders rallied around him and like just amazing fellowship and community. And I remember meeting my best friend through Josh. His name was Matt. He was a sports freak. I was a sports freak. I wouldn't say I was the best sports player, but I just love sports. Every night to this day, I watch Sports Center, and I met Matt. He was six foot six, a beanpole, just this lanky guy, awkward runner, you know, just. <laughs> but the biggest heart for Jesus I've ever met, serving people, reading his Bible every day, hours a day, and. I got to know Matt really well. I lived in Josh's house for two, two and a half years with Matt. So Josh was a bachelor at the time, and he rented out his house to young men of the area, and we would be youth leaders, and we'd all live together and go hang out. It was an amazing ministry Josh had going, because it saved a lot of young men's lives, not physically, but spiritually. For sure. Um. So I lived there. It's called the cottage, about four or five of us at a time. And then one guy would move out. There's a list of guys that, you know, if you're on the list, you're good. (laughs) And the next guy would move in. Well, I got on that list right when I met Josh. And I got in the house like a year later, lived with Matt and Josh and a few other guys that are still to this day some of my best friends because they're in the Lord. You know, that connection is deep. I can always call them text them, email them, and I get a reply in five minutes about how they're praying for me or everything in between. Man, that's great brotherhood. And kind of goes down the trauma path because Matt got cancer while I was with him in college. It was 2012, I think. I was out playing catch with him one day, and he kind of buckled his knee running for a pass, and we went to the ER and the typical x-rays and whatnot and just out of nowhere we take the x-ray and there's this massive cancer in his knee right where he got hurt wow so it was like god finding it for us you know i'm gonna snap your knee here so you find this yeah we found it he found it and that was the beginning of the end for him and it's a blessing in disguise because he uh He changed a lot of people's lives through this story of cancer and the battle and his perseverance and just how he clung to the word through this entire battle. Unfortunately, he lost his battle a year ago. And so that was like, I forget, eight or nine years of cancer. Yeah, he fought for a long time. Oh, he he was in the hospital six days a week. And maybe he'd get out one day. You know, he just was... 
always, always sick. And he was done. Like he just, he was resting in God's promises every single night. Like, Lord, do you have a better plan for me than sit here and be in pain? Yeah. And he was teaching so many people how to persevere through that though. But just being his, one of his great friends, he had many great friends, but it was an honor to be one of his great friends because he would lean on me in those dark days and I got to be his shoulder. So there was nights I'd drive to the hospital in the cities and he would cry on my shoulder because he's done fighting, you know, and that wasn't what he posted on social media. Of course, you never see those things. Right. But everybody suffering through stuff has those days. You know, they can be strong for so long. But we all have bad days. So to see him struggling and, you know, this gentle giant just slowly withering away, you know, it wasn't an immediate, like, boom, trauma. But it was just like this encompassing trauma of like, I don't want to watch this happen. Yeah, it's kind of like this gradual process of you yeah. see him deteriorating physically. Yeah. And just as his family was great, like he just got married. So it was just a lot behind it. And uh, a year before he died, my oldest son, the one we were just talking about, he didn't have a godparent on my side. So I gave Matt, my friend, and his new wife, the honor of being his godparents as kind of like, cause he knew my son through this whole process yeah, through college and he knew the whole situation. He knew both of us people and it was an honor for him to just, you know, be a part of our life more than just friends, yeah. godparents. But again, the pattern continues where a, a strong influential male in your life is now taken away from you and so again nick what was that like losing uh, another friend another just strong male influence in your life yeah i kind of sulked in that for a while you know i had a couple crying drives back from the cities because he he called me one day and said you should probably come down here to the cities this was a few months before he died and he just said, I just want to say goodbye to you. And this was out of nowhere. He said, I just want to say goodbye to you. I'm not feeling good anymore. And you should probably bring the kids. And I just drove down myself. I just wanted to check, see what's going on. So I drove down and he was pretty sick. And I remember just hanging out with him. I brought some friends from college. We all kind of said our goodbyes. You know, we didn't know if it was goodbye, but we just wanted to, you know, give him one last hoorah. And I remember laying in his bed with him. You know, he's very fragile at this time. He's on a lot of tubes and whatnot, laying in his bed. And I look over at him and he's really weak. His eyes are shut and can't talk. And I kind of lean over, hold his head, and I open one of his eyes with my finger. I was like, hey, Matt, do you want to see the kids? My my kids. And I had Tristan's, my oldest, he was, I don't know, seven or eight at the time. No, he was 10. Yeah, this was just a year ago. And then Jack and Annie. So they were three and one. Do you want to see my kids? 
and he lit up his face, the biggest smile I've seen in a year. So I called my wife. I was like, get the kids here now. I wanna, Matt wants to see everyone. So everyone drove down. We hung out till night. It was late. And we had an hour drive home. We didn't care. We're saying goodbye to Matt. But, you know, Lord gave us some more time with him. We had another two, three months. And I can't say, you know, we saw him a lot. But it was a really cool way to say goodbye without being there at the last minute when his family was with him. Yeah. You know, Nick, as we're talking, again, that theme of you losing people throughout your life, I, I think of comfort, mm-hmm. you know, right? When, whenever we go through something like that, we want to be comforted. How have you found comfort through those times throughout your life? You know, the cliche Christian way to say that is I've clung to the word and prayed a lot. I've done that, but not a lot. And that's... uh a downfall of mine, I'm learning to lean on the promises of God. You know, I struggle with reading. I can read. <laughs> I read well, but I don't have the the mental state to stay in a book for a length of time. So I'll read, every morning I try to read at least a chapter of the Bible. And then at night I try to read something different. And it's usually C.S. Lewis, which is deep, so that gets me confused anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But So what I try to lean on is people around me who support me, comfort me, and have my best interest in mind. And that's mainly my wife. And most days it's not like literally leaning on her, like cuddling up to a movie or something, but it's being with her. Being with friends that I know love me whether I'm going through a dark time or we're all happy. Like it's the community around me that I've tried to build because I was in bad places in my college days and even high school where these friends don't care. You know, they, yeah, they're there for you. They'll pick up the phone to go get a beer. That's about it. They don't care how my son is doing. They don't care where, you know, what's going on with my spiritual life? No, but the friends I have now ask me, how are you doing? (laughs) That's the deepest question you can get. How are you? A lot of people, you know, slough that off with good. How are you? That's the easy answer. But I'm learning to dig deeper in each of those conversations. And I think if I can say, I'm trying to push my wife to answer that better, you know, like dig deeper, even with me. Like when we say, how was your day at dinner? Not just good. Like, let's talk about it. Yeah. Whether it was really good or really bad, let's talk about it. Yeah. And teaching the kids that. We always at dinner ask, what did you have for lunch? You know, because that'll spark it more than just how was your day? Yeah. We had corn dogs, and then, ooh, was that good? You know, and they just start spitting off stuff, and then you just hear some crazy cool stories. It's really cool. But Mm -hmm. leaning on people right now in my life is my my go-to. You know, Jesus is always there for me. I'm always going to keep reading the Word and praying. But leaning on the promises that he's given me in my life, and that's, like, I went to St. Cloud State for music. 
and I started playing. So I was living with Josh at the cottage and I started, you know, doing youth group stuff, youth leading. And I, I played guitar. I didn't really play it well at that time, but I just told Josh like, Hey, I'm a music major at St. Cloud. Like I could play on youth nights and lead worship and all that. He was like, let's go, let's do it. So I kind of called myself the intern. I wasn't by any means a youth or a worship pastor. I just kind of filled in just playing. And some of my friends, you know, the other youth leaders, we had youth students. It was fun. You know, a good way for me to grow in that area. I knew my music, but I'd never led worship, you know. It was different for me, but extremely fruitful. Because from there, I met a lot of, you know, college-age friends who went off actually into youth ministries and worship ministry. They were actually really good worship leaders. I branched out with that and played with them at their churches some days and, you know, led a few things on the side. The first time I met my wife was on one of those little side gigs where I was playing a Sunday morning in Avon, and I was just filling in for the worship pastor. She was either sick or out of town, and a college friend, so I filled in for a Sunday morning, playing some songs I knew, kind of simple, and my wife and her mom and sister were in the front row, and we locked eyes, and that's that, you know, but kind of cool story is her mom connected with the pastor like hey who's that new worship pastor and get his number to my daughter that kind of thing (laughs) plain matchmaker yeah exactly no it all worked out we started dating a month or so after that we were talking and seven weeks later we got engaged it's very short-lived but it was very god-centered like we definitely felt right in all areas of it Nine months later, we got married. So it was about a year process from when we met to married. And we moved to Mankato. She had a year of dental school left. So, I mean, my life was just kind of all over the place there in college. You know, meeting people, going into youth group, and meeting my best friend, Matt, and going through his cancer story, and then meeting my wife and moving while I have a two-year-old at the time. It's a lot going on in a very short amount of time. Yeah, exactly. So my life was just crazy for a while in a good way. Like I was the happiest I've ever been. And just meeting my wife was the cherry on the top. Like God is moving in my life because look at what he gave me. Like he gave, this is my gift. You know, I treasure her and I treasure my children now and my life that we have together because I just look back at what I could have been going through. Still could be going through all of that darkness. And it could have got worse. You know, I could have latched on to drugs or substances of some sort, you know, anything. And I didn't. I never got attached to any of that. But it was readily available. And God pulled me through that without me even asking. That's the coolest part to me. Like, he had my hand. But I didn't have his hand. He was like dragging me through the sand. Like, no, no, no. You're coming with me, dude. Because I got bigger plans for you. So that just kind of going back to where I lean right now in my walk. You know, if I'm having a dark time or worship for sure. So I play Sunday mornings and 
special events here at church and my guitar is kind of my safe place now. So even at home, if I'm having a bad day or the kids are having a bad day, I'll pull out my guitar and we just sing ABCs on guitar, anything. And then I'll start playing a couple worship songs and we'll all just be kind of singing, running around the basement, you know, just fun, happy night. But it's my expression to God. And I've, I've told Derek this a lot. Derek's the worship pastor. I've told Derek, like, please don't let me stop playing worship. (laughs) And it's not up to him by any means, but we're on the same page as like, this is where I'm at home in the worship, on the worship team. And I don't need to lead by any means. It's a joy when I get to sing a song up there on a Sunday, but when I'm just strumming away and praising Jesus up there, that's where I'm grounded. I'm definitely deeper in my spirit those times. And so surrounding myself with community, you know, friends, fellowship, times in the word, but that deep connection I get personally, and everyone should find that. I think that's a really good thing to find, whether it's playing a guitar. It doesn't have to be on a platform. Like I played a guitar in my bedroom for 10 years with nobody listening. So maybe it's finding that or doing a craft or riding your bike, something where you can personally find Jesus. Yeah. Because that's, that's what's changed my life. If I, if I didn't play guitar and worship team, there would be a void, I feel. Jesus would fill that in some way, but that's how he's filled it yeah. today. Yeah, just having that relationship with mm-hmm. Jesus, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. It's not about mm-hmm. following a set of rules or anything like that. It's about truly knowing Jesus and opening ourselves up yeah. um, for him to come in and just have his way with us. Yeah, that's truth right there. So you and your wife, Kira, have been married for how long, Nick? Oh, boy, that's a bad question. <laughs> it's working on eight years. Working on eight years. Yep. How's marriage been? Amazing. Uh, she's, uh, she's a star. I can't thank God enough for her. She is definitely strong-willed, which is a very good trait to have with me because <laughs> I need someone to push me sometimes and I need, you know, different direction. Um, she's very, very good with the kids. She's so gentle, but also, you know, teaches and is strict with certain things and She's the best mother for our kids that I could ask for. And, you know, going into my oldest son isn't her child. So she stepped into a situation that not a lot of people desire. And she's taken it head on. We have things we're working on, for sure. But they're all fruitful. Like everything we've pursued and she's pursued through this step family situation for her, for us, has been fruitful. Like we've dove in with Jesus at the center, you know, forgotten about a lot of the distractions and it's an amazing relationship now. Her and my son like have a lot of fun. They laugh. And honestly, he opens up to her easier than to me because it's kind of an outsider perspective, I would say. He's just kind of letting things out at dinner or while they're in the kitchen making dinner, you know, just he loves just chatting with Kira. You know, it's kind of funny. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. 
Well, Nick, it sounds like you you have a very full life, you know, when it comes to your relationship with Christ, when it comes to your family, a lot of fullness there. A lot of times, one of the places that people don't feel that fullness is like work, Mm -hmm. right? And and what they do for a living, it Mm -hmm. it kind of becomes like this, just this task that we have to do to provide. And so uh, you're at a spot now where, I mean, you're loving what you're doing. Talk to us of how that all came to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've never been happier in my occupation than I am now. And I'll put a little plug out there for Sticks Woodshop. Yeah, check them out. They do great work. <laughs> so yeah, I started my woodshop business almost two years ago now. And I'm just all on my own in my two-stall garage. I've been a carpenter for about 10 years. And I've just been working at random contractors and I moved buildings for two years with the guy from church, and yeah, I've just always been looking for my next spot, my next role, my next, like I always wanted to move up this ladder figuratively, but I wouldn't say I wasn't moving up, but I just wasn't being fulfilled when I even moved up. I'd I'd get the next role or I'd get the next promotion, and I'm just like, well, there's another one. Let's go for the next one. I don't know, it just never filled my life. And it kind of goes back to, so I've always wanted to start a business. And this just kind of, since I came out of college and met my wife, I was just like, there's more to life. Like, I just want, I'm a dreamer. So I was always dreaming of being my own boss. And I was still working for contractors. You know, I'd put a window in for a guy on the side or, you know, do random things. But... I was never my own boss. And it came back to four years ago or so, three or four years ago, I started working moving houses. And those are long days, you know, 5.30 a.m. to midnight, 1 a.m. some days. So you're putting, you know, roughly a 16 to 20 hour day in, five days a week. And that's on a busy time of the year, but you're easily doing 12-hour days every day. So my wife stepping into her new role as a stepmom. We have a couple little kids. Now I'm gone five days a week from the time the kids get up till bedtime. I'm not home. So she's taking on everything. I'm out just moving buildings, you know, in the dirt, getting tired, throwing stuff around. Like I am exhausted on these days. That's a lot of hard work. You know, through all this hard work, I'm still processing, like, how can I get out of this? Not to, like, spite anybody or, you know, get at my boss at the time. Like, that's not at all my mindset. But I was just like, there's more to life than work. I don't want to do this. I love hard work. I love putting in my time and making quality products and, you know, doing the right things at the right times. But there's definitely more to life than just picking up your hammer and you know there's family time from 4 30 to bedtime is family time for me I try to set my hammers down you know go play with the kids and it kind of all came to a culmination when I was in a really bad accident at this house moving job it was a it was a rough day it came it comes back to that trauma path and and I'm overcoming this trauma. This is why I keep saying trauma, because I'm, I'm, I'm defeating it. And it was a 
It was a rough day. I was in a skid loader, just to kind of preface this. I was in a skid loader, and I was just about to go pick up some beams. These are 55-foot-long beams. They weigh about 8,000 pounds apiece. Wow. Metal, steel, and, you know, it's a big piece of iron. And I bring my skid loader up. It's icy January. Going up this hill to get these things. Truck and trailer is on the top of the hill. And I'm coming up. I can see them. And then all of a sudden, the truck and trailer start backing down the hill. Right towards my skid loader. It's coming right at me. And it's going nice and slow. So I kind of was telling the guys, like, hey, I'm not ready. You know, don't move the truck yet. And it just broke free and came full speed down this hill. And I was yelling out the window, like, hey, guys, I'm not ready. Guys, stop moving the truck. And nobody was replying to me. And we're on radios at this time. And at that moment, I was like, this is not good. Nobody's replying to me. And then I look at the truck. Nobody's in the truck. This thing just broke free on the ice. sliding down this hill right at me. And uh, I said my last prayer. I saw this big beam, and it was, like, sliding into my cab of the skid loader. And I, I was doing everything I could. I was going in reverse, and I was just sliding on this ice. And I remember saying my last prayer, like, first thing I said was, no way. I remember verbally saying that. No way. This is ending this way. No way. And then I just, like, come on, Jesus, do something here. And I curled up into a ball into the corner of the cab of this skid loader with my seatbelt on. So I couldn't really curl too tight. I was just kind of moving out of the way. And this beam laid right across my lap, hit my knee, hit my kneecap, scraped up my leg really good. And then it caught my seatbelt and took my seatbelt through this cab because I lifted my arm up. And this beam, if you can picture, just went through, caught my seatbelt and tightened, cinched me into this seat now. So I'm like tighter than tight into this seat because it's just, and I'm stuck. I'm in this thing. This beam is laying on my legs, 8,000 pounds. And I was like, oh boy, I'm in a pickle now. <laughs> to I say the least. Yeah. I wasn't bleeding out or anything. So I was like, I checked everything quick. I was like, okay, okay. I'm okay. I'm not fine. Like I need to get out now, but I'm not bleeding. So I'm in an okay spot. And my boss at the time came in and just, what can I do? What, what, what? You know, kind of in the moment. I was like, just cut my seatbelt. Cut my seatbelt. And he has a knife on him all the time. That's a blessing right there. So he whipped it out, snapped my seatbelt, and just all the pressure came back. I was like, oh, okay. Everyone take a breath. I'm okay. That was a close one. But now I need to get out. This thing is still on me. So they started grinding the cab off this thing with grinders and getting another skid loader from down the road. And there's two feet of snow, so we couldn't just quickly do anything. So it was just like a bad scenario. And I'm like trying not to panic. I know like panic would be the worst thing for me at this time. And I've seen too many movies. I've seen too many, you know, documentaries. You just don't panic and you'll most likely be okay. So in the moment, I'm just trying to breathe, trying to process, like, did I say my last goodbyes to my kids this morning? Like, do I call my wife? 
what do I do? Like, I'm trapped. And I would say it was 10 to 15 minutes. 15 minutes I was trapped in there with this, and it was cold. And this iron beam was freezing cold, laying on my lap. So it's like double cold. I'm literally shaking, probably because of shock. Yeah. But also because this thing is cold. (laughs) Very, very cold out right now. Right. And... I mean, these guys out there were doing everything they could to get this beam off me. But you can't just move an 8,000-pound beam. You need machinery. And they were doing everything they could. They got this skid loader, and all of a sudden, just this thing moved it just enough. And it took all the pressure off my legs. And all I said was, thank you, Jesus. I yelled it. Thank you, Jesus. And I got out of that cab. I sat on that beam for 10 minutes with my boss, and we just sat there. Nobody said a word. It was just like blank stares all around. There was just like chaos was just a tornado went through that area. Well, and and you think about that beam. If it was just a inch or a couple inches in any different direction, you wouldn't be sitting here. Right I wouldn't now. be alive. The doctor looked at my knee. He said, if that beam hit my knee half an inch the other way, my knee would have, it would have went through my leg. Oh, wow. And my leg would have went through the cab of the skid, like just bad stuff or if the truck twisted one inch the other way and the beam just like twisted in the cab i would have been chopped in half like so many scenarios where god's hand was like literally over that i didn't get hurt you know the seatbelt tightened yeah i had some arm issues for a few months i had to work my fingers back into mobility which is very small in the grand scheme of things and then just a little cut on my leg from the beam like that thing should have killed me yeah so it was just a extremely traumatic moment in my life but it was also one of the greatest moments of god's presence because I, I literally felt god was like at work i could see his little puppet strings like telling the guys what to do and like move the beam this way get the skid loader this way and i was like god you can do it i know you can i'm gonna get out of here and I hopped over there and I just yelled, thank you, Jesus. Like, oh. And, and it, I think what stands out to me during all that too, Nick, is just kind of that peace that mm-hmm. God brought you in that moment. Obviously, there was some fear and panic, but yeah. you didn't let that get the best view. You chose to remember, hey, this is who Jesus is. Jesus mm-hmm. shows up. And that peace, it sounds like, is what kind of helped keep you calm during all that. Absolutely. Yeah, that peace... Uh, Surpassed my understanding at the time, as the verse says. Yeah, so I uh, got out, hopped in one of the bystanders' cars, and we went right to the ER because the ambulance wasn't even there yet. They called the ambulance, but I just needed to get out of there. I was so cold. So they got me to the ER, checked me out. I mean, yeah, I was there for two, three hours. My wife came, and honestly, they just said, you're free to go. I was like, what? (laughs) I just about got killed back there, and I'm walking out of the ER two hours later. Back to I went right back to the our shop, my work at the time, and you know filled out our insurance paperwork, all the things we needed, and went home. <laughs> and just literally two hours before that, I was in the worst spot of my life. So it was just kind of a really rapid day of trauma, but also being wrapped in the presence of God. So it was really 
really cool to be a part of that. Yeah. And so how did that traumatic event play into you wanting to start up Sticks Woodshop? That was kind of my day of reconciling with God. You know, like I've always wanted to be my own boss. I don't know what to do. I'm a carpenter. Don't really want to start building homes because then you got to get all this machinery and equipment and probably another guy or two to work with you. And I'm just like, you know, I just want to be simple. I just want to love what I do, but do it on my own time. And I know it sounds like I'm just being picky, but I think we all get to choose certain things to be picky about, you know, and if you don't like what you do, don't do it. Love your life, you know, live your life that you love. I don't know, all these cliches, but it comes into real life when you're just going to work, to go to work. I didn't want to do that anymore. And I told my boss, like, this might be my last day at your job. <laughs> and he's like, whatever you got to do, you know, I'm, I support you. And I worked there a couple more months. I was just trying to wean myself into my career. And that was just starting my wood shop. So, I mean, that I was off work for a week or two from that accident. And I was just at home trying to rest and fix my arm. And all these images of logos and, you know, designs for my company kept popping into my head. And I was like, God's working here. I got to throw this all on paper. So I got my computer out in paper and I was just drawing and doing all these designs. And I created my own logo. And it's an arrow, an orange arrow. And there's a few meanings behind it. And if you go to stickswoodshop.com, you'll find it. <laughs> nice little plug again. But I'll also I'll share it here too. So there's the greater than sign is the front of the arrow. And that's just he is greater than I. And I always wanted to incorporate that in my logo somehow. And it doesn't need to be distinct like and say the words. But I know that it's in there. And I can always share that with somebody. And then I just finished off that with the swoosh to make it an arrow because I'm always going to keep moving forward. Mm. I'm never going to look back. I love it. I, I may look back and remember a few things and process some things, which is always healthy in the right atmosphere, but I'm never going to look back and be down on myself. I love it, man. I love it. And you've done a, a couple projects for my wife and I at our house. And mm -hmm. I remember last summer you were working on our deck. And I think I told your wife this. I was just like, you know, I just kind of was observing you and as you were working and you just seemed so at peace. Mm -hmm. it, it was like you were in your element. Yeah. And uh, it was just cool to see. And obviously, like I, I knew what had happened at, mm -hmm. at, at your previous job and your, your dream to start this up. And I'm just like, man, he's living his dream now. Yeah. I, it is quite a dream because I, I'm never late for work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my garage. It's awesome. And I get to be with my kids so much more and enjoy it. It's not a burden. Teach my kids how to use tools in the shop and go to work sites. They come with me once in a while and do simple tasks and it's beyond a dream, you know. Well, praise God. Nick, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, looking back at your life, obviously there's a lot of loss and, and trauma there, but mm -hmm. it also sounds like there's a lot of redemption yeah, for as sure. well. Yeah. Um, there's still a lot to go through with some family members and, you know, talk through a few things here and there 
work through situations. There's always going to be those that come up. But I know my rock, my foundation is Jesus. And I know that it's never going to fade. I'm always going to have my friends around me, my community, and my worship. You know, I'm always going to have that. Whether it's my guitar or a great conversation with a friend, it's the same to me. It's a way to connect on a deeper level. And that's what I think all of us yearn for. But it, it takes time for some people to find how to get there. Well, Nick, it sounds like you have found that for yourself. And again, I'm I'm thankful for our friendship. It's been great getting to know you mm-hmm. and, and your wife over the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm excited for people to hear your story. I, I feel yeah. like people are going to be able to see just the hope that Jesus brings, the comfort that he brings, the yeah. peace that he brings in, in all circumstances. And uh, thanks again, man, for coming on and, and being gracious with your time. For sure. And just uh, keep this in mind, everyone. Trauma doesn't have to hold you down. Amen. Amen. Man, Nick really has a heart of gold, and his story shows that no matter what you've been through in life, you can rise above it with Christ. Trauma and your circumstances do not need to define you. Nick isn't known as the guy who grew up without a dad or the 20-year-old father or the survivor of a freak accident. He's known as a man after God's heart, a loving husband to his wife, Kira, and a present and involved father to his kids, Tristan, Jack, Annie, and Kevin. If you guys have any questions for Nick, use the hashtag AskTWT across the social media pages, and we'll get him to answer a few. And if any of you are looking for custom woodworking in your home, check out StixWoodshop.com or the Sticks Woodshop Facebook page. I'll link them both in the show notes. My wife and I have had Nick do a number of projects for us and have been blown away at the quality of Nick's work. He's been an absolute pleasure to deal with, and you guys definitely won't regret going with Sticks Woodshop. Also, make sure to leave those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps to make this podcast easier to find for people and gets the word out. And if this podcast blesses you, share it on social media or send it to a friend or family member, because I really believe these testimonies can change the world. That's all for this week, and I'll be back next week with another testimony. So in the meantime, live your life in such a way that glorifies God and kicks Satan's butt. Peace. Peace.